The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Hebrews chapter number 10. Great music, great singing today. Praise the Lord for that. Hebrews chapter 10. If you were, uh, if you were here for some of the revival this last week and you enjoyed it, would you say amen? Amen. amen. I thought that was really good. Enjoyed the music, enjoyed uh, the preaching and the time together. And the dinners together, it was, a, it was a good, refreshing week. Praise the Lord about that. Uh, if you're following along in the uh, catechism with us, I went ahead and moved us just a little bit forward to question 32 for today, because I uh, got to thinking about some of the sermons that Ronnie preached, and I don't know, he covered a whole bunch of questions that are in the catechism, and some that aren't even in there. It was great. And uh, so I thought, well, he covered a lot about that. So we moved ahead a little bit to question 32. I hope that you'll continue to use the book or the app and, and study that with your family. It's a great way to, uh, to walk along. So today we want to talk a little bit about justification and sanctification. That is God's saving work and God's growing work in our own life. Let's read verses 11 down through verse number 18 of chapter number 10. So the Bible says, Every priest stands, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then goes on to say, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Wasn't that a wonderful song that we just sang? That though our sins be many, His mercy is more. Doesn't that fall in line with that? And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's, let's have a word of prayer together and look at this text. So our Lord, we do come to you now. Thank you for this wonderful music and all of those that participated in that. Lord, thank you for that sweet, uh, sweet song at the, at the beginning. Thank you for our choir and all of us singing as a congregation together. Thank you for our time of giving and prayer, fellowship, Bible study today. And now we come to open your word and we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus through the help of the Spirit of God that you would help us today to be conformed to the image of your Son. We pray, Lord, that we would be convinced of your goodness and mercy and of the cross work of Jesus and his resurrection and that we would live uh, lives that are surrendered to you. And we love you and we'll thank you for all that you do in advance. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray these things. Amen. 
bring ourselves to a text like today, you would find that if we were able to back up and give all of this in context, that Hebrews chapter number 8 through the end of Hebrews chapter number 10 is really one big argument that the author is making. And in fact, he makes it all throughout the book of Hebrews that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Jesus is better than other priests. He's better than other kings. He's better than the angels. And so, you know, there's just a great book of the Bible to say that Jesus is better than everything. Amen? And so we bring ourselves today, you're looking basically at a closing argument to the entire argument that Jesus is better. And you know, when you think about these closing arguments, if you're anything like me, I think about courtroom dramas, you know, now whether, you know, whatever that might look like on the, your television shows, but now the courtroom dramas, and, and it's always the, the climax of the show is when they give these closing arguments at the end and they stir the emotions of the jury. And, you know, you hear the defense and you think, yes, this person's not guilty. And then you hear the prosecution give their last closing arguments and you think, no, the person is guilty. And, you know, as I was researching and looking about closing arguments, it seems like most of that is just dramatized for people. Most courtroom closing arguments are supposed to be a summary of the evidence and an appeal to right reason. Maybe some of you are thinking back about uh, the closing arguments years and years ago in the O.J. Simpson trial. Do you, do you remember the closing arguments where uh, Johnny Cochran says, if it doesn't fit, you must what? Acquit. And I forever have that image of the glove going on and not fitting and listening to those last words. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. But brothers and sisters, the closing argument is not an appeal so much to the heart as it is a summary of the truth of the Word of God that we'll look at today and an appeal to all of us to say, yes, that is the reason why I should go on with Jesus. That is good enough for me. And what He has accomplished and what He has done is better than every other religion and everything else that we can think about. And so I will give my life to living for the Lord Jesus Christ because what he has done is true and good and right and applies to my life. And so if you were going to summarize kind of the main idea of these few verses today, I think it would be simply this, at the deepest level of our heart, only Jesus can truly forgive us. Only Jesus can truly change us, and only Jesus can give us true joy. And every human heart in here today, every person in here, young or old, rich or poor, doesn't matter where you come from or who you are, everybody in the deep crevices of our life, we want those things. We, we starve for those. We crave for those kinds of things, that there would be true forgiveness. There are people in this room, and if you're anything like me, you have skeletons in your closets. You can think of things that you've said and done, and it just causes you to cringe, and you wish that nobody in the whole world would ever know about those things. And there are people here today, we want true, deep, lasting forgiveness. The kind of forgiveness that wipes away and washes away our guilt and our shame so that we don't continually go back and live in those days and live in those hours. There are people in this room today and what you really long for on the inside is genuine, true change. 
You may be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you find that there are still dirty garments in your closet. There are still thoughts in your mind. There are still things that you do and say and struggling sins that you beat yourself up with and you've cried tears over it. You've promised change and you've turned over new leaves and you've put on your bootstraps and yet all of those things that you still cannot get past some of those haunting sins that are in your life. And still furthermore, there's people here today and you long not for a fake smile, not for just the baptistic way of telling everybody that everything's okay and you can turn a phrase and give a joke, but you're looking for the kind of joy that brings a satisfaction and a peace and a, a wholesomeness to your life that whether you have won the mega million or you didn't win it, you're still happy on the inside. This text teaches us today that the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished in them, what He does in our lives, truly brings to us genuine forgiveness, genuine change, and genuine joy. Let me talk to you for a few minutes about the author's closing arguments in this section. First of all, from verse number 11 and 12, he draws some contrast. Look with me, and you might want to take a pen that's in front of you or a pencil and just note the contrast in verse number 11 and verse number 12. Look what he says here. I'll read it for you again. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time. And really, if you were to read it accurately, here's time after time after time after time after time. It's just this ongoing ministering these offerings time after time, the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. Look at the contrast of verse number 12. But he, that is Jesus, the one this whole book is talking about, who is better than Moses and better than the prophets and better than the angels, better than the priests, he, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. I'll just draw your attention to a few of these contrasts. Look, at it says in verse number 11 that it's every priest or multiple priests. In verse number 12, it is he, this one priest, it is Christ. Brothers and sisters, all throughout the Old Testament, there were a myriad of priests after the order of Aaron, and they lived and they died and they lived and they died, and they grew old sacrificing for the people, but there always needed to be another priest. There always had to be somebody to come after them. But when Jesus comes on the scene, He is the high priest of all high priests, once for all, and He accomplishes the work on our behalf. Amen? Look at there, the contrast between standing and sitting. You see in verse number 11, every priest stands. And the reason why they're standing is because their work is never ending. They are constantly moving. There is an old lore. I'm not necessarily sure that, it is, uh, that it's biblically accurate, but there is a history behind the high priests in the Old Testament that they would sometimes tie a rope with bells around their ankles. And when the high priest on the Day of Atonement once a year, he would go into the Holy of Holies where the mercy seat was, and he would have a basin of blood from an innocent sacrifice, and he would sprinkle the blood upon the mercy seat. They said that the priest had to continually 
moved back and forth and the bells would be ringing. And if the bell stopped ringing, they knew that the priest had not been holy enough and they drug him out and went and got the next guy in line. Wouldn't you hate to be the next guy in line, right? <laughs> be confessing every sin you've ever done. Like, man... I don't know necessarily that that's in the Bible, but I, I think that there's some accuracy there in the, in the history and the annals of that. But what I know is that these priests would go in there and they were always supposed to be moving. They were always supposed to be not settled down into the Holy of Holies. Why? Because the work was never accomplished. The sins could never be atoned for. It was simply a placement holder pointing us to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were standing in there ministering. But what does it say about Jesus? When he accomplished his work, he sat down on the throne at the right hand of God the Father. It's as if when Jesus goes in to present his own blood, not the blood of another sacrifice, but his own blood. You see, he is both the sacrifice and the priest. And when Jesus atoned for our sins at the cross, it is finished. And Jesus sits down. You see, brothers and sisters, there is no more work to be done concerning the atonement for your sin. If you're in this room today and you do look back in your life or you have these crevices in your minds of things that bring you guilt and shame and heartache and decisions you've made, and life looks not like you wanted it to work out, but you think about all of those things in the past, what I want you to understand is Jesus has already died on the cross. He has already atoned for your sin and you are free and clear and righteous, not based upon your own good works, but based upon the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is finished. It is gone. There is no debt to be paid for your sin, for Jesus has paid for it all. I hope today that'll bring you some grace. I hope today that you'll find some encouragement and some strength. You might not even have to look far back in the crevices of your mind. You might just need to look till Thursday. Maybe sometime this week you said something or did something or thought something and you know in your own heart that it's a sin that you're struggling with and working at. I want you to understand that when Jesus died on the cross while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly so that all of our sin, both past and present and future, would already be atoned for. You leave here today, I hope that if you're a believer in this room, you'll leave with some courage and some strength and some grace in your heart that all of those sins that come up in your mind that the devil reminds you of, they have already been paid for and you are free and clear as a child of God. You don't have to feel guilty over those anymore. And the grace of God is no substitute for a lack of holy living, certainly not. Isn't that what Paul was arguing with the people at Romans over? Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. The work of the cross, the atoning of the Lord Jesus, the washing away of your past and all of your sin doesn't give you the license to go out and live like you want. It gives you the freedom and the gratitude and the joy to leave here today to say, if Jesus has washed all of my sins away, then I ought to give everything that I have to live for Him. And I wish you weren't so pious. I wish I wasn't either. For if you took five minutes right now to meditate and think 
about the things you've done in your life, even in the last week that you regret. It'd give you enough joy to live the next week for Jesus to say, thank you, Lord, that I don't have to pay the price of that sin. Say, the Lord has done the work for us on the cross of Calvary, and He sat down. Here, let me give you just a couple others. Notice in verse number 11, it says the same sacrifice. And in verse number 12, it is this once for all sacrifice. Oh man, you know, sometimes I think we gloss over that Old Testament. We just think about those sacrifices. But I want you to know that if you were to be around the tabernacle and the Holy of Holy, if you were to be around that area, there were times where it smelled like blood. And it was gross. And it was dirty. And innocent sacrifice and animals that had done nothing wrong lost their life. And I want you to be there. I want you to, I want you to notice that all of the horror of the taking of the life of those animals, the reason why you have to smell it and see it and be there is because your sin and my sin requires that. And do not glamorize Calvary, please. For I would imagine that if we could take ourselves back with spiritual eyes and stand at the foot of the cross, you would not be singing the old rugged cross. You would probably be turning away, trying to move out of your mind the images of the beaten and the bloody Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for you. We don't need multiple sacrifices. We need Jesus once for all dying and rising again to pay for our sins. The closing arguments here are a contrast between the old way and the new way brought to us by Jesus that brings forgiveness. I was reading this week, uh, and somebody had asked a little boy to define forgiveness. And I love his answer. He said, forgiveness is this, it is the odor that flowers breathe when they are trampled upon. I think about the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. There is no more need for other sacrifices. There is only need to receive Jesus and to live in the power of His forgiveness and grace and mercy. Now let me go off script here for just a minute. I was thinking about this, and even this morning on the way in, I was thinking about this. Hey, don't, don't beat those Old Testament priests up too much. I'm not a priest, but I am a pastor. And I imagine those guys had a hard job, don't you? All of the children of Israel sinning all the time. God's opening up the Red Sea. God's crossing and letting them across the River Jordan. God gives them manna and quail. God opens up a rock and lets them drink. God does all of these things. And what do they do? They murmur and argue and fuss and fight and sin and sin. And can you see these poor guys? 
I mean, every time they get, a, they, they get an offering, they do it, they go in there to the Holy of Holies, they sprinkle it, and all right, you're free and clear. About the same time they come out, somebody else is coming in. I got us more sin. I need, I need forgiveness. And here these guys are, day after day after day, offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Hey, don't you know that had to be a heartbreaking job? Hey, don't you see God speaking to you from a mountain? Hey, don't you see God opening up this Red Sea? Hey, there's food on the ground. There are quail. Have you ever been quail hunting? It's really difficult to go quail hunting. And God gives quail so much they could just smack them with their hand and eat. And here they are sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. How would you like to be one of those guys? I wouldn't. I started thinking this week. And even this morning, you know, there's no more need for those folks because Jesus has sacrificed everything on the cross, one sacrifice for all time. But can I tell you something? As a friend and maybe as a shepherd, sometimes these shoes are difficult to walk in because I talk with people and I don't forgive their sins, and I don't even go and give sacrifices, but I'm constantly pointing them and saying, hey, brothers and sisters, Jesus died for you. You don't need all those Old Testament sacrifices. It's once for all. You're forgiven. You're clean. You've made made whole. Not only are your sins gone, Jesus has dumped all of His righteousness in you. He's giving you everything to live for Him. The second Peter says He's given us everything we need to live the life of godliness. And still, I talk with people who are supposed to be redeemed and have trusted Christ and have that applied to their soul and their life. But we go on and on and on and on in besetting sins. Sometimes I'll even talk with people and it's not so much that they have a host of sins, but they have a lack of love for Christ and His family. That they, they give very little of their life or their wealth or their time to the things of God. And sometimes I think, but Jesus died for you. And if he didn't, you'd still be in all of your sin without any hope for eternity. But, but look at what he did for you. And look at what he does for you. I hope today that you'll leave here today contrasting the old system with the new. And you say, man, Jesus is the better sacrifice and the better priest. He's done all of these wonderful things for me. I want to live for Him this week. I want to show my gratitude by actually living out what He has done in me. I'll make a quick point or two. Look back at the text, probably from verse number 13 and 14. I think part of the closing argument here is that He defines conversion for us. Let me read 13 and 14. I'll make a couple of statements. He says here, so he's already sat down at the right hand of God. He says, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected, right? 
For all time, those who are, you could translate it, he's perfected those who are being perfected, right? Or he has perfected for all time those who are being or been sanctified. And we'll get to that in a moment. Here's, here's maybe a couple of things to think about when we talk about defining conversion. The first thing is I want you to understand Christ's compassion. Christ's compassion. Look back at 13. You might not get this right away, but I want you to think about it for a moment. It says, verse 13, he's waiting there at the right hand until onward, until his enemies be made a footstool for him. You see, the, the, the author here has moved from a priestly depiction of Jesus to a kingly depiction of Jesus, where he's sitting upon the throne and he is ruling over the entire world. And, and, and you might be here today and you say, well, look, the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Just hold on. One day Jesus will rule over all of it. And all of his enemies will be his footstool. So what's the best way to understand that? Maybe you should think about it this way. Instead of just longing for Jesus to wipe everybody out and come and establish his kingdom, maybe we should look at this passage and realize it is true that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. But until then, it's the grace and compassion of Christ that he doesn't do it right now. If you're an enemy of God, if you have not trusted Jesus, if you're on the outside looking in, I want you to understand today that it's the grace and compassion and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that He doesn't wipe out everything that's bad. He loves you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, it doesn't matter to me whether you're a member or a visitor. It doesn't matter to me whether you've been here uh, for a charter member or whether you just walked in here today. I want you to understand that Jesus has not made everything, every enemy his footstool, and that gives you the opportunity to believe on him while you still have time. That's compassion. That's kindness. The Bible says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. I've met some people before that were unbelievers and they'll say, man, you know what? I, I got in this horrible wreck and it, it was the grace of God that I didn't die. I should have died. You're right. You should have. And God was gracious. So believe on him. Can I say not only for believers, but I, man, I'm, or unbelievers, but for believers, hey, sometimes, I, sometimes I'll visit people or I'll talk to people at church and I love them, and I'd never say this to your face. I just kind of smile and love you and pray. I'll, I'll visit with somebody, and they, they want to suck the life out of everything you got, but they don't give anything to Jesus ever. They don't talk to him. They don't pray. They don't read the Bible. They don't ever tell anybody about Jesus. They hardly ever show up. Don't, don't, don't do that. Use the time that you have and the compassion that God has had on you. He's not judged you. He's not pulled your life from your body. He's not exiled you out. He loves you. He's kind to you. He takes care of you. He provides for you. He gives you friends and family and people in your life. He gives you a church. God's doing all of these kinds of things for you. Don't turn your back on Him. Love Him. Follow Him. Be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we ought to be with our lives. Part of conversion is Christ's compassion. And can I say this? How do you usually, as a king, bring people to be your footstool? With the power of the sword, right? In ancient history, that's what we would say with the power of the sword. I think the book of Hebrews would say that Jesus makes his enemies his footstool 
by the power of the sword, the sword of the Word of God. Because it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And if you're in this room today, lost or saved, you can bow before the King of eternity, and He'll use His Word to penetrate into your heart right now. And maybe you're here and you think that you're upset at me or you think you're frustrated at what I've been saying. You're not. You're frustrated at God's Word because it's piercing deep into your soul. And instead of fighting, if you'll just humble yourself and say, yes, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong and I need you. The same sword and the same one that wields the sword to cut to the quick of our heart also says that He is the balm of Gilead to bring healing and mercy and kindness to us. Well, let me say just a couple other things here. Christ's compassion. Look at verse number 13, or, uh, verse number 14. Great little verse here. Uh, justification, sanctification wrapped up in one word. You see Christ's completed act and Christ's contemporary work. Look at verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected. Now that, that there, when it says perfected, it means a one-time act with abiding results for all eternity, right? So he has perfected for all time those, and now there's a present tense that's going on here, who are being perfected or who are being sanctified. And this is the great paradox of Scripture. And the Bible teaches that when Christ died on the cross, he took away all of our sin. He put in the righteousness of Jesus. And the Bible says that all of that is done with. And at the same time, in the same hand, in the same verse, it says that he is doing an ongoing work of perfection in us. I like what one scholar said. He simply, he simply brought these two together, our justification and our sanctification by saying this, we are becoming now what we already are there. You know, the Bible says that we're already seated together with Christ in heavenly places. Can I say something to you? Most days of the week, I don't feel like I'm sitting in heavenly places. Do you? Is there anybody in this room that would stand up and say, I'm pretty much already perfected. I, I got this thing whipped. No. But here's how you ought to look at it. You ought to realize that Christ has already perfected you. And one day you'll be conformed completely to His image. And in the meantime, God is working with you and in you for His glory and your good. Now you say, Steve, why, why is it like that? Here's the blessing. You see, when you understand that Christ perfected us in the past and we are already seated together with Him in heavenly places, when you couple that with the nitty-gritty of actually becoming more like Jesus now, it helps us from going off the, on either side of the ditch. You see, some of us in this room would be tempted to lay back and say, well, it's already done. I can just live however I want. And Jesus paid it all. I can just live however I want. No, see, you still have to do the ongoing work of the Spirit of God working in our life to take off the old and put on the new and become more holy each day after Jesus, right? You don't get to just sit back with hands off. At the same time, there's others in this room and you, you may have been saved by the grace of God, but you don't live that way every day. You live your life most days thinking that if I just do better and work harder that God will accept me. He, he, he loves me because I'm living for Him. No, He loves you because His Son died for you. 
And you don't want to go off either one of those ditches where it's a laziness, Christ did it all so I can live however I want, or I'm earning my salvation. No, you hold both of those in your hands together and say, Jesus completed it all. I've been made holy. I sit together within Him in the heavenly places, and yet I am to work with the Spirit every day of my life to become more like Jesus now. Maybe you should put it this way. Maybe if we're all seated together in heavenly places in the future, right, there is, this, there is this totally righteous and completely sinless you sitting there with the Lord Jesus in heaven. Maybe you ought to think about it like this. Maybe you should try and live your life this week so that if you died this week, you wouldn't be too far off the mark when you got there. Let me give you one more point. We'll finish here today. The closing argument he makes in uh, the rest of the part there, verse 15 down through verse number 18, is helping us to understand that we should depend upon the covenant. Notice with me just three things here. First of all, that is that the Word of God comes by the Spirit of God. Look at verse number 15. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, who is the one that is saying? It's the Spirit of God. Don't ever divorce the Scripture from the Spirit of the living God. Brothers and sisters, when you get ready to read your Bible, you should always pause and pray and ask for the Spirit of God to give you wisdom and insight and illumination. The Bible says that if you have the, if you have the written Word but you don't have the Spirit, all you have is the letter and the letter kills. It is the Spirit that gives life. And it is the Spirit of God that takes the Word of God and collides in your heart so that you start to look like the Son of God. The Spirit and the Word. Now, secondly, the Word resides in us. Look at what it says here. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart and their mind. I will write them in. Do you get the difference here between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Moses went up on the mountain and he got the tablets of stone and he brought them back. And so the law of God was external to the human body and they were to conform themselves to that. But the Bible teaches us that the Spirit of God takes the written Word and He brings it inside of us so that the Word of God now lives in our heart and in our mind so that we are better able to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And the word produces wonder. Look at verse number 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let me ask you this. This week, did you rejoice and glory? Did you, did you thank God this week that all of your sin has been washed away? And that He's given you the Spirit and the Word and that you can live for Him. Did you thank the Lord this week that you've been forgiven, that you've been transformed, and that you could have true joy because of what Jesus has done? Let me just finish by telling you this. This book that we're talking about today, Hebrews, it's probably written in sometime in the uh, early 60s, A.D. 60 to 65, somewhere in there. 
and uh, probably written during the reign of Nero, who was the emperor of Rome. And you've probably heard stories or uh, read it in books or seen movies about Nero, but Nero was genuinely insane. Genuinely insane. Did all kinds of crazy things. In fact, he, he uh, ended up hating Christians. Uh, a lot of times, this is the kind of person Nero was. Nero would, uh, when he'd have like big parties, went to a party yesterday. When he would have big parties, Nero would have people uh, and demand that they commit suicide at the party just so he could watch that and be entertained. That's pretty nuts, isn't it? Nero, uh, long around early 60s, in Rome, city of a million people, 14 boroughs. Fire goes off and burns for a week, destroying parts of about 10 or 12 of those boroughs, three of them completely reduced to ashes. They get the fires under control, and then they break out again. Somebody sets more fires, and Rome is burning alive. And word goes out that the only one crazy enough to do something like that would be Nero. And Nero, he starts these uh, rescue places and he starts these hospitals and he starts feeding the poor. But the, the, the word still is on the street that Nero in his insanity is the one who is burning Rome to the ground. So he devises this great plan that Nero will blame the Christians. The Christians set the fire to Rome. So Nero starts taking Christians and dressing them in the bloody skins of animals and at the circus, turning loose wild animals to tear them limb from limb. Well, he has a great get-together, and so in order to have it go in the evening time and not just during the day, Nero dips these Christians in tar and puts them up on poles and burns them alive in the night. And the author of Hebrews is writing to believers who are fearful in their hearts. Have we made the right decision to trust Jesus? Or is there another religion? Say, I don't want to be dipped in tar and burned alive on a pole. Should I follow Nero? Should I be silent about my faith? Should I slip into the background and find somewhere else in some other religion? I need the deep things of my heart to really be assured here. Is this one Jesus you're telling me about? Is he really able to forgive everything that I've done in my life? Is he really able to produce genuine life change in me? Is he really able to give me the kind of joy that even if I'm giving my life being torn apart by an animal, that I could have genuine joy? Is there really somebody that can do that for me? And the author closes his arguments by saying, this one Jesus is worthy for you to die for. And there's not a face in this room today that will face anything close to what those Christians did this week. Are you walking with Him? Are you loving Him? Are you sharing Him with everybody you can? I hope today that you'll remember that Jesus forgives. Jesus changes us 
from the inside out. And Jesus gives us joy. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. In just a minute, we'll stand and sing a song together. Maybe, maybe right in your own heart right now, you need to talk with the Lord. Why don't you just take that moment? Just talk to Him. If you're here today, you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I urge you with everything that's in me, look to Jesus, believe on Him, trust Him, and He'll save you. As a believer... What are you doing with what Jesus has already done? Do you take everything from Him and give nothing in return? Don't do that. Stand with us. Let's sing together. Just for a moment. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.